Hi, I'm Michael Pinter. Welcome to the How to Flip New York podcast, where we teach you how to start or grow a wholesaling or flipping business in New York. If you're getting any value from this podcast, please leave us a review because that helps us out greatly. Hello, and welcome to the New York Real Estate Podcast. I am interviewing one of my uh, mentors, who is uh, John Martinez. John probably doesn't know some of this, but I, I went to uh, your boot camp, John, in Coronado a few years ago, and it had such a profound impact on my life and business. Uh, that's how I found Investor Fuel, which I've been a member of for three, almost three years now. And uh, just learning a sales process has a tremendous effect. So I want to thank you. Uh, for all that you've taught me. I've mentioned you a million times on this podcast and on my on my YouTube channel about how I think you're the premier sales trainer for real estate investors. And uh, I want to thank you for everything that you've uh, helped me with over the years. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. Also, you mentioned you had Frank Kern at that, at that uh, meeting. And I've since spent a lot of money with Frank Kern to try and help me sell some other products. So I'm a big fan of his too. So thank you for that also. You bet. So um, for those of you, for those watching who don't know who you are, you want to give a little introduction about yeah. it? Sure. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm, a, I'm a sales trainer. I've been in sales uh, basically my entire career. Uh, the first 15 years of my career was just uh, working in corporate America, kind of getting bigger and bigger roles and, and climbing that corporate ladder. Um, about six, going on seven years ago now, I opened up my own sales training business because like, like most investors, kind of want to do my own thing. I was done with that and I wanted more. Uh, within probably the first year of opening up my sales training business, I had my first client in the real estate investment space. And that this space, real estate investment, really took over my business. So for about the last five and a half or six years, um, I have been exclusively working with real estate investors just to help them turn more of their leads into deals and increase their, their conversion rates. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I know, I know you tried at some point to maybe expand to other, to other, uh, industries, but I think your main focus has really been real estate investors. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. So I started in other industries, um, and just did, did any, any industry, uh, lot, lots of business to business type stuff, a couple of business to consumer type things. We do have some trainers who license our content nowadays who train in other industries, but I focus primarily on real estate investment. Right. Okay. So I, I operate in New York. New York is like a a little bit different than some other places. I know we, we both are friends with uh, Greg Helbeck, who also operates in New York. Um, I run a podcast with Greg. We speak to, whenever Greg's around. I get together. I'm a big fan of Greg. Um, but what what and Greg really operates on both coasts. So he operates in in California and in New York. And he really uh, started doing this virtual investing where he was in New York and he was investing in Dallas. For me, I'm always local and I'm always meeting the seller face to face. And I just wanted your thoughts on. I know a lot of people have shifted to virtual where they get, they're closing over the phone. Um, and I wanted your thoughts of virtual versus face-to-face uh, -face selling. You know, I don't think one is necessarily better than the other. It's just two different business models. Um, one might be easier in a market than another market. For example, uh, if you're in a very small market and it's incredibly difficult or incredibly difficult to produce leads, um, it makes sense to kind of expand your area and do some of that virtually. Um, if you are in a market where there are more leads than you could handle in that one market, and you've got the, the staff and the resources to meet those sellers, you know, face to face, um, then that makes sense too, right? So I, I really don't think it one is better than the other. I think it just depends on what type of business you want. Um, if you want a, you know, 
$50 million real estate investing business, you're, you're going to expand one or two ways, going into diff, uh, different markets on the ground or, or virtually. And in that case, virtually probably makes more sense. So uh, in my opinion, one isn't really better than the other. I think it, it really depends on the investor and, and what they want out of their business. Sure. I've, I mean, I, I've always felt like meeting was, was better, but the truth is I'm limited. I'm the only acquisition manager in my company, so I'm limited by time. So in theory, yeah. if I can go virtually and talk to a lot more people while I'm driving on my way there, it might I might end closing more deals. And it's something that I'm considering doing in, in some other areas or maybe eventually in my own area. But I think yeah. you're right. It doesn't there's pros and cons to both. And right. and uh, some people have success with with, with either of them. Um, yeah, and I think that's a great way to look at it is if you've got uh, more leads and you have time that's when it makes sense to start to implement some of that, that virtual stuff. And it doesn't mean you have to get rid of face-to-face. -face. You might try to close them virtually. And I know a lot of companies do this. They, they speak to them. And if they can't close it virtually, then it turns into an on-site visit. So I, I think that's the, the exact right way to look at it is if you've got more leads and time, then some virtual component makes sense if you don't want to hire more people. Right. I think that makes a lot of sense. So we're in like a crazy market now. I mean, certainly for as long as you've been doing it, and I've been I've been in the business only about nine or ten years, where prices are astronomical. I mean, even numbers I'm getting for wholesale deals are are more than I expect. I get calls all the time. I just put two properties out. I get two dozen calls saying, "What's the number? What's the number?" And my number, I say, my number is as high as I can get because every time I give somebody a number, I I, get, I end up getting more. Yeah. What are there any any changes at all due to the current market that you have seen or that you would recommend in either strategy or tactics to deal with the current environment where I, I think that prices really are at all time highs? You know, I think the biggest thing is on the disposition side. Um, a lot of people have their go-to buyers and they've been reliable, especially in down market times, right? You've got these, these four or five buyers that are extremely reliable and um, that's your buyers list. But I think in this market, you really have to think about expanding your, your list of buyers because those tried and true buyers that have been buying from you for years probably aren't paying top dollar, right? Um, so the biggest change I've seen is people really focusing on growing the disposition side of the business because someone offers more, someone offers more, someone offers more, and they're getting 10, 20, 30, 40% more than they thought they were going to get profit-wise uh, just because they've expanded their buyers list. So really, that's the biggest change I've personally seen. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that a lot of times the people that are buying my wholesale deals are 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 newer, are first timers. Maybe they're estimating, uh, they're sort of projecting that the market's going to continue to go up, and they're willing to spend more. Or what uh, in my area, the the auction for the first four years I was in business, I wasn't even marketing direct to seller. I was only buying at live auctions and online auctions. So when I took a lot of notes during those four years, and I thought I had the best buyers list, but when I got when I started marketing direct to sellers and wanted to sell to those people who I thought would be the best buyers, a lot of them wouldn't buy from me. I think they had seen me buy too many things, but, and they figured there was something wrong with whatever I was selling them. But lately, because they haven't had, we haven't had auctions in New York since last February, uh, a lot of those people are coming back and they're, and they're, and they're, they want to, pay, you know, they're off, they're making offers and begging me to give them some, some deal, you know, some pocket deals. But uh, I think expanding list is a, is a great, is a great, great piece of advice in today's market, because a lot of times it's a first timer or somebody who maybe uh, calculates a deal in a different way is going to give you the most money for it. Um, so I, like I said, I, my, the boot camp you did in Coronado had a huge, huge impact on my life. Are you still doing the live boot camps now? Are you planning to so, do more? Um, we've, we've done them for years. Uh, I didn't personally, we're going to still do boot camps as the REI Sales Academy, a company. 
Um, I've, I'm personally uh, not doing them anymore, but uh, we've got some of our very best students like Greg Halbeck who can help out with those types of things. Um, so, you know, it's hard for me to step away from something like that because it's, it's kind of built into my identity. Sure. But I really think it is a test of the sales process. I think uh, any sales process you have, if you can't step away and let someone else, else teach that process, and that process is too complex, right? So, you know, this is just kind of the next evolution. We'll keep doing boot camps, but I, I want to show people one of, the, one of the reasons I'm stepping away. Um, there's some personal reasons. I uh, just, just like to be with my family more. But another reason is because um, it's a process. And anyone can teach a process. It doesn't, you don't need anyone special to do it. So part of that is just is proving that. So uh, I'm working on bringing on a, a group of trainers um, that can kind of an all-star team that can do boot camps together and, and that type of thing. Uh, again, because I, I want to have more focus on the sales process and let's focus on me. I think that's 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 very well said. Because I, I, you know, as I said, I'm the only acquisition manager in my company. I'm trying to build up with enough lead flow that I can hire a few acquisition managers. And you say, as you say, that the process, if, it, if, if you can't train someone else in the process, then it's not really a process, right? It's just something that you do. So that's something that I'm working on uh, as I hope to hire acquisition managers to replace myself. I need a, I need a really good process. And obviously I, most, most of my process is from you. So um, a couple of things that you teach that I think are very uh, counterintuitive that make a lot of sense are uh, takeaways and going negative. So yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that and I'll, I'll talk about just how they've helped sure. me so, in so many ways. Yeah, so, so really every, I've, I've done a lot of sales trainings myself and, and read a lot of books on sales and about every philosophy has some form of it. It's, it's nothing new, it's, it's nothing uncommon, but it is very counterintuitive. And really going negative or the takeaway or pulling back, lots of different companies call it different things, but, but really what it's all about is this. Um, sellers are, uh, you know, in this industry, sellers are sometimes reluctant to share a lot of information. Sometimes they put up these walls to protect themselves for a good reason. Maybe they're uncomfortable. Maybe they just want to make sure they get the best deal possible. There's a number of reasons why sellers put up these walls. And when the investor is a little reluctant, uh, to get the deal, when the, when the investor doesn't put pressure on the seller, um, and kind of steps back and it's really easy going and the seller doesn't feel any pressure at all or like they'll be taken advantage of. They, they open up more. And when they open up more, that's a really good thing because you learn more about their situation. You learn about all the reasons why they would do business with you. And, and based on that, you can create a pretty compelling offer because it's speaking to what they want to accomplish. At the same time, if they are very open and honest with you, they're going to share with you all the concerns they have that even if they want to do business with you, even if they're really motivated, some of those concerns might slow down the deal or even kill the deal. So if they share those with you, oftentimes, not every time, but oftentimes, just because the investors know they can deal with it and get the seller to a point where they're comfortable moving forward. So, you know, it's the old school way of selling is, is always be closing. And, and that's kind of been proven wrong because the more pressure you put on someone, the more they withdraw, the less you learn. Um, and that could, you know, not only causes low conversion rates, but you might not even get to the appointment or get through the appointment if someone's feeling too much pressure. So that, that's my take on kind of pulling back or go, going negative. Yeah, I think it's, it's an amazing thing. And I, I have trouble when I trade, when I train people in lead intake from, from the Philippines, 
it's it's a little bit of a cultural uh, push because they are trained in the BPO industry to basically say yes to anything, right? They deal with people who are complaining from big, big companies like American Express or Walmart, and they're told whatever the customer says, you agree and say, you're sorry, you apologize. And I'm trying to teach them and the ones that are successful get it. But if somebody doesn't seem, if somebody's not being cooperative, somebody's not answering questions or somebody's not, doesn't seem like it's a good lead, you need to push away and you need to say, sounds like, you know, I tell them this three sentences. I say, listen, we're investors. We have to buy at a profit to make money. It sounds like we're not a good fit. And I said, those are great sentences because only one of two things are going to happen. Either they're going to say yes, and you're going to stop wasting your time, or they're going to say, no, I have a problem. And then the truth will come out. So pushing people to, to push away, um, I find it easier to teach people in the U.S. than it is people in the Philippines, but it's such a valuable tool. It always, it can't, you can't lose with it. Either, either you, you've stopped wasting your time with someone who's never going to sell you a house or you're, someone will reveal the truth. So it's been huge. But some of the takeaways that you teach about getting to price have, made a huge, have had a huge impact on, on my whole sales process. Because I would say before I was following the typical script you'll see out there from an investor, which would say, if I can close all cash seven days and, and take care of all your whatever, um, what's a price, what, what would you want to sell it at? And especially in New York, people really have their guard up and they don't want to give that number. And I've switched to a whole series of takeaways where I say, I'm guessing you don't have an asking price. And I get price now through that question and like two others, I get priced now like 70 to 80% of the time, as opposed to like 20 or 30% of the time I used to get there. And the way you taught of how to ask a question without asking it has been extremely helpful because me having price, you know, helps me not, not go on appointments I shouldn't go on. And it helps me be able to talk to people uh, and get a lot more information from them in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And I think the name of the game is exactly what you said. The more information you have, you know, sales isn't like magic. It's, it's getting all the information possible and saying, based on what you told me, this is why I think we might be a fit and just connecting all those dots for a seller. So the more information you get, um, I think the easier and easier it is to, to craft a compelling story, a compelling offer about how you can help them achieve whatever it is they're looking to achieve. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. The more information I can get helps me every time. Another thing you teach, which is really important, is anchoring. And I, I find myself not remembering to do it every time, but it's such a powerful tool. Do you want to talk a little bit about anchoring, price anchoring? Yeah, yeah. Anchoring is nothing new in this industry. Um, it's, it's, you know, um, the, the first form of it or the form of price anchoring that most people are familiar with is using low comps before they give an offer. And the reason why using low comps works when it works is because it starts to reset the expectations that the seller has about the value of the property or what they can get. And when the offer is given next, it's not as shocking. They don't pull away as much. And it kind of just smooths that over a little bit. Um, anchoring, the concept's the exact same. But what we teach is you don't always need low comps. Um, in fact, in some markets and in, in different situations, and low comps can get you in trouble. People just might not accept those numbers. They might push back. They might... You might lose rapport because they think you're full of it or they, they, they're low comps, right? So they might know of houses around them that have sold for a lot more and then you've lost all the trust. So keeping in mind that the goal of anchoring or low comps is just to reset expectations, you can reset those expectations in a number of ways simply by mentioning a lower number. And it doesn't even have to be an offer. It could be something as simple as, um, hey, I was doing some research and I saw a house kind of around here. I think yours is nicer, but... It, it sold for $40,000 and I was completely shocked, right? That's one way. Or you could say, hey, 
I'd love, I'd be really comfortable and through the roof. If I could, if I could buy your house for 50,000, that's what I, I want to get it for. I know there's no way you'd accept that, right? So anchoring and then a takeaway, that's another way. You just want to reset expectations. So as long as you remember what low comps are meant to do or anchoring is meant to do, there's a lot of easy ways to do it where you might experience less pushback from the seller. Yeah, for sure. And then, uh, so when I combine my anchoring, which I don't always remember to do and I should, with your teach, with your teaching about how to give an offer where I'm not okay, I, I almost make them mm -hmm. beg me for the offer. Yeah. I have co completely transformed a situation where many years ago, I was getting screamed at when I'd give an offer. You wasted my time. You're you're crazy. Why, I, don't, I can't believe I spoke to you. To now, nobody's upset when I give them a number. I probably get more, I definitely get more accepted <laughs> offers. And it's not a it's not a difficult situation. Sometimes it's a strain for me to make them beg me for the offer, where I keep telling them I don't want to, you know, I don't want to insult you. I don't want to, you know. And I really learned that at the boot camp. That I think I was standing up there, and you, you we were doing it together. Um, but that's that's completely changed the way I make offers and uh, made my entire uh, offer making process into something where I, I don't have an angry seller anymore. I, I, at worst case, I'll have a no, but that's fine. We know we know we're not going to get it. We know we're not going to get every offer accepted but it's really, it's really helped me out. You know, I think that's a great point that, that you just made. Um, selling, and, and I'm guilty of this, I focus a lot on conversion rates, but a good sales process, the other thing it does is it makes selling not so hard to do, not, you know, not make you so uncomfortable. Not, in my, my early days of selling, the way I was taught was really pushy. And I hated the whole experience. It was, you know, getting out of my car to go to a sales call. I was like, oh, I was just dreading it. Um, so a good sales process, in my opinion, one of the, the benefits that not a lot of people talk about is actually enjoying what you do, being comfortable with it um, and turning a awkward pressure filled situation for not just the seller, but also for the salesperson or the investor into more of a pleasant conversation. I think that speaks volumes um, to, to sales process. And I think it does help conversion rates because people aren't as reluctant to go into appointments and it, it just becomes more of a, you know, it might not be the funnest thing you do all day, but when you don't dread it as much, it selling, I think becomes easier. Absolutely. I was many years ago, I think 1992, I was a stockbroker and, you know, we were taught always be closing and pound them over the phone and, uh, I, I got good at it, but it wasn't something that I enjoyed. And um, your process is the opposite of that. Right? There really is no close as much as there is um, a consultative approach to finding out if they have a problem that we can help them with. And the thinking, and, and this completely reset my, my mind. The thinking is I, you can't go into a sales uh, meeting on appointment, whether it's on the phone or in person, thinking about how am I going to make money on this? What you have to approach it, uh, it, the approach has to be, you know, does this guy, have, does this seller have a problem that I can solve? And if they do, I want to find out. And then I, I'm going to try and solve his problem. And that's it. And, and it's fine. And if I, if they don't have a problem I can solve, if they, if they want to list it for top dollar and have somebody to list it with, because I take listings too, then it's not going to work out. But, but, but the setting the table and the advanced agreement and where, where it's okay. And we're not going to buy every house that we, that we go on. Um, has completely reframed it in my mind and allowed it to be a much, much better process. Even when I leave an appointment where, I, where I'm 99% sure the guy's never going to sell me the house or, or list with me, I always leave with, listen, whether you sell to me or you don't sell to me or list with me, I'm here to help you. 
you have my number. If you need somebody to help clean it out or I go through whatever issues they've spoken about and that's it. I'm just there to help. And that, and, and that has completely changed the way I think about it and the way I've taught my whole staff to think about it in lead intake or even co-calling. Listen, if they don't have a problem we can solve, we're not going to do business with them. And that's fine. We're here to help, to help them in any way that we can. And that's, I, I totally helpful. agree. I, I, sorry for cutting. I, I totally uh-huh. agree. And I think it's just a, it's a mind shift, right? It, it's a mindset shift. When I think investors were taught and some still are and, and uh, people who are kind of new to the industry, I think their focus going into a sales call is I've got to convince this seller that their house is only worth X. Right. And that's really tough to do. And that's not the right conversation to have. So it's just, will you get some houses? Yeah, of course you will. You know, you're, you're going to find some. Um, but shifting from my job is to convince them that their house isn't worth what I think, what they think it is, and that they should sell to me at this price because this is the real value. To do you have a problem I can fix? And by the way, if I fix it, here's the price tag, right? Is it worth it? If I help you with that problem, is it worth giving up a little bit of equity to get the help? Right. Totally different conversation, totally different feel, and, and different results, too. For sure. And I, I, I meet people sometimes where I say, listen, you, you can list this property for sale. And you might want to list it with me or not. You're going to make more money on it, or you could sell it to me. But I'm just going to tell you why you might want to sell it to me, right? You're not going to have to clean it up. I'll close whenever you want. You know all the all the advantages, and it's simple. I said you're going to get less money if you sell it to me, but there are advantages to it. If that's worth it for you, then we'll we'll go about that. If not, I can list it for you, and we can get more money. And then and that's my approach every time. I'm trying to do what's in their what's in their best interests. I'm not trying to take advantage of anybody. I'm just trying to help them get to where they where they need to be. And your, your process had a huge, a huge shift in my mindset about how that works. And that's helped me tremendously. Yeah. And it's, it's that, that freedom to be completely transparent, right? Um, I think, you know, we talked about sales feeling not so good or not being such a pleasant experience. I think one of the things that makes sales not such a pleasant experience for some is they feel like they can't be transparent and they're hiding things, right? Like they've, they've got to almost pull one over on someone. Um, and the idea that you can be 100% transparent and say, hey, you can get more money if you just list the thing, it blows some people's minds, but, but conversion rates increase, the quality of the conversations go up, everything's better. It's just, you know, we've had this sales culture for probably 100 years, at least 50 years, where, you know, I, sales was kind of a dirty word. And it was a dirty word because it should have been, right? A lot of people used kind of tactics that weren't 100% ethical or, or even effective. Um, but when you can be completely transparent and say, here's the conversation we, we're going to have, here's exactly what we're going to talk about, and I'm just going to lay it out. There might be better options for you. I'll lay out those options. I'll lay out what I could do for you. And then at the end of the day, you can choose whatever you think is best for you. It, for me, again, um, I'm an introvert. So that type of sales process has helped me the most personally because I, I felt like I could just be me, tell the truth, and and um, really let the cards fall where they may. And then the, the the great thing about that is got more deals, right? Had more sales. So yeah, yeah, I think that transparency is a beautiful thing. Sure. So I, I'm teaching people how to do this in New York, and I find in many situations they, the the mindset problem with them is they they almost think that in order for us. To buy a deal at a discount, we have to be taking advantage of someone. And I almost have to retrain their mindset to explain to them, I go, we're no different than, than Starbucks, right? You go to Starbucks, you pay $7 for a cup of coffee. The ingredients probably cost 20 cents. I go, yeah. you go into Starbucks because you don't want to buy the machine. 
You don't want to have to deal with it. You want the certainty and convenience that a Starbucks provides you, even though their markup is thousands, a thousand percent, whatever it is. So it's the same thing we provide. We provide certainty and convenience to the seller, the certainty of knowing we're going to close at the number that we gave them and the convenience of not having to show it a hundred times or not having to, to, or to be able to close when they want, we're not having to clean it up. That, that's what we provide. And it's, it's, it's no different than any other voluntary transaction. And sometimes it's hard for some of my students to get that in their head. And until they do, you know, they don't want to do it. They, they're afraid to talk to a seller because they're good people and they don't want to be selling somebody something that's not in their best interest. And I, and I have to convince them that you're, you're not, we don't, we're not predatory. We don't take advantage of anybody. It's a, it's a voluntary transaction. And if they sell to us, it's in their best interest. And that, that was always a, that was a struggle with a lot of, a lot of my students. Yeah. It, it's a struggle for a lot of people. You know, um, we convince ourselves that the money is the be all end all and whoever has the highest offer is going to be what the seller chooses. But if we examine our own lives, almost everything we buy, we could have got it cheaper, right? But there's reasons why we decide to spend more or give up some money because like you said, convenience and a thousand other factors. And, and there's a million different things that are important and prioritized for different people. So that, that's one reason that the sales conversation is so important because we need to find out for you seller, what do you prioritize? And at the end of the day, if it's just money, 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 I might not be the best fit. But if we go through this and we find out that there's other things you prioritize, we might be a good solution, right? So it, it is hard to retrain the brain that, that people aren't just going to accept the highest offer. There might be some things that they value much, much more and are willing to give up a little bit of cash to, to get help with those priorities. Uh, sorry, something's coming around. Um, yeah, I met, I met someone, I went, went on an appointment yesterday with a seller and she was very like, defensive in the beginning. And she basically was telling me that afterwards, when I, after I went through the appointment, that the last investor who had come to her had, uh, so I'm not sure, the last investor who had come to her had really come into the house and nitpicked on everything. This isn't good. That isn't good. This is a mess. And just all, that's all. And she said it was a very negative experience. And I didn't do that. I, I never do that. I think, I always think that's a bad idea. Um, so I, uh, I told her your house is really isn't that bad shape. You know, it's not, you have options and this is much, she kept apologizing for the condition and apologizing for some of the work was in the, in the middle that she was never going to finish. And I, it was for me, I was like, this is not bad. This can be done. And she was like, I, it's like night and day between you and the other investor. And, um, it was a much more positive, much more positive experience for her. And uh, I know there are people who do that, right? They go into a house and all they do is point out, oh, that, and they start writing on the clipboard about all those things and they make it into a negative experience. And uh, for me, that's just, it's, it's just not a good plan. It's not a good, not a good sales process in, in my opinion about how to, how, to, how to do business. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's what we were talking about a, a few moments ago was you can either take the approach of, I'm gonna try to convince you that your house isn't worth what you think it is, or I'm gonna see if you have a problem I can help with. And in that first gentleman, or, or, or I'm not sure if it was a man or a woman, the first uh, investor or acquisition agent, obviously the approach was, I need to convince this person that their house is only worth this much. Right. And, and you saw the, the outcome of that. It's a negative experience. People don't like it and they don't open up and they don't share with you the other reasons why they might even sell, even if they you know, aren't offended. For sure. Now I, I I I try to follow your process, but I'm not I'm far from perfect on it. The biggest struggle I have with it is really the digging part and trying to go deeper. If you talk about that a little and maybe give me a tip on how I can improve it, because I'm always 
they give me a reason and I usually don't go below the surface. Yeah. Yeah. So um, really, uh, you know, the science behind digging deeper into pain or whatever someone's motivating factors are, people make decisions and make change in their lives for personal reasons. It's not that their house, for example, is, you know, a mess with in need of repairs. The reason someone sells is because of what that's, how that's impacting them, right? It, it, it stinks living there. They're embarrassed about the condition. They don't get the use out of it as they used to. They might be worried about health concerns. There, it's the impact of something. That's, that's, what, that's what we want. For another uh, example of this, um, it's not the thing on the surface, it's the impact, it's money, right? Nobody wants a million or a billion dollars. Uh, a big pile of money does zero for you, right? If I had this room just chock full of cash, the cash is worthless. The only thing that brings it its value of how it can impact my life, right? Uh, so having the pile of cash if it impacts my life because a lot of worry and stress goes away, that's great. If it impacts my life because I can do things for my family or kids or the community that, that make me feel good and useful, then that's how the money impacts my life. So money would be the surface. And then the impact is, you know, why, why I would even want that money. So as far as digging deeper below the surface, I find the best way for me, and that you know, that's what I'll share with you, is by that's where I always go negative, right? Hey, the house is not in great shape, so I'm thinking about selling. Oh yeah, it's not, you know, it's it could use a little bit of work, but it's it's not bad. Is it really worth selling, right? So going negative over and over again is that really a big deal, right? I meet with some people, and that's they can't live with it. Other people, they it's been like this for 20 years. It's not a big deal. So just always kind of questioning their motivation, asking in some form or fashion, is it a big deal, right? And you can always preface it. If, if you're scared to do that, you can always preface it with, hey, help, help me out. Um, I meet with some people where if their house needs a little bit of repairs, they just want it done. They want it gone. They want to go somewhere where they don't have to worry about it. And, and that's it, right? And then I meet with some people and it's not a big deal. It's part of life unless the roof is falling in and they don't really care. And then when it does happen, they'll find a way to fix it. Which one of those camps do you fall in, right? And you could you could give them the choice as well. Very good. Yeah, I got. I've, that's something I need to work on for sure. Um, but uh, thank you for that. Um, and I, another thing that I don't always do, but I learned an uh, unfortunately painful lesson recently, is uh, go through all the deal killers. So I had a situation where um, I got a listing from uh, an older couple. And I did not ask the question I should have asked, which is, is there anybody who's going to be even a little bit upset about this? And the daughter went bonkers on me saying I was taking advantage of her mother and that I was trying to steal the house from her. I mean, I listed it for sales. So I wasn't even buying it. Um, but I think she thought I was listing it too high and that I would end up buying it because I also gave a cash offer. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about revealing these deal, deal killers towards the end of the appointment and why they're so important? Because now I know that I need to ask that question every single time. Yeah. So I think, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to kind of start at the end of the problem and work backwards. So I think what a lot of investors don't like is when they end up with a, a, a situation that they feel like they can really help and they feel like they're 80 or 90% of the way there, but the deal doesn't close, you end up with some, some form of a put off, right? A maybe or a think it over, or let me get back to you, something in, in those terms. And then what the investor does is they think to themselves, shoot, I, we were almost there. My job now is to figure out what the concern is or what's holding them back. And at this point, it's really difficult to 
to call and keep the conversation going or schedule another meeting or, or dig, right? So what we recommend is doing that on the front side, right? So before you make your offer, going through the most common things that usually can, you know, will stall or kill a deal or be a concern that someone needs answered before they move forward and systematically going through those things. So if there is anything that's going to stall or kill it, or, or, or maybe you do the deal and it just goes bonkers afterwards and unravels on you, you find out on the front end and you deal with it the best you can right then. And that will lead to more conversion rates. And then sometimes it helps, um, it helps the deal from going sideways after the fact. For example, if they said, it, it might not have made any difference, but a difference it could have made if you asked that question was, yeah, my, my daughter is really worried about what we do. Well, what are her thoughts? What does she want to see you know, for you guys? What are her biggest concerns? And then if they mention something like, well, you know, she just wants to make sure we get a good deal. You know, we have a lot of equity in the house. You could then coach them. So when they talk to the daughter, right? So when they, they have mom and dad have the conversation with the daughter, you've, you've, you've already prepped them. You know the conversation they're going to have. And the daughter says, are you sure you're getting the most out of the house? And they say, you know what? Um, for an investment example, no, we know we're not. We can get more listing. That's what we talked about. But as we thought about it, we don't want to list because this and this and this, and, and you've prepared that conversation, right? So best case scenario, you know, you, you close a deal. Second base case scenario, it's a maybe or a think it over, but you've already prepped them and coached them and it turns into a deal. Um, and I guess the worst case scenario is you don't get the deal, but at least you know why you didn't get the deal. And, and when you know why you didn't get the deal, you kind of know what to do with it, right? Does this mean it goes into my weekly follow-up? Is this one we're right at the, we're right on the edge on and I really need to stay on top of it? Or is this one that, hey, this is a monthly follow-up because unless something major in their situation changes, I'm never getting this deal. So right. even knowing why you didn't get a deal, I think is really, really important. Or the truth is even not getting a deal, like, like if you would, if I could turn back time to that situation, I would have preferred not to do that deal because it ended up being like a nightmare where this, this daughter was, you know, saying she's going to report me to the police I, and she wouldn't talk to me. She'd only text me and I, it was out of control. I almost prefer I didn't get that deal. So I wish I could have revealed that beforehand. So I didn't go yeah. through that nightmare situation with the daughter. Um, so I, and I'm okay with that. Like, I, and again, as we said before, I'm not going to buy every, every property that I make an offer on, but revealing the deal killers before the deal starts is a much, much better plan in my, in my, in my opinion, than finding out yeah. later. Much better. I agree. Um, so you, I, I saw you have something now called sales mastery. Do you want to talk about what that is? Um, well, we, we do a couple of different things that that's something we haven't officially launched yet. So I'll, I'll put okay. that kind of on the, on the table for now, but you know, at, at the end of the day, when you talk about sales, I guess I'll just, just leave everyone with this point. Sales is something, it's one of those skills that you have to continually work on. It's not something that um, you can just read one book and you master sales. I think sales is like any profession or any skill set where the more you practice, the more you self-examine um, and are real with yourself, um, the, the better and better you get at it. So, you know, that's, that's the main point I'll leave about sales mastery is it's not, it's never a one and done thing. It's something that you get better and better at over time. And I don't think anyone really gets to a point where they're absolutely perfect, but I think you, you keep getting better and um, you're not perfect is head and shoulders above everyone else. For sure. I know that I, 
I need that concentrating. I, I, I'm in the online uh, mm -hmm. REI Sales Academy, and I need that that constant uh, help because I forget things. Like I, I didn't even realize that I wasn't uh, price anchoring, which is something that could definitely help my offer making. So these are things that I need to constantly uh, refresh. And if anybody watching uh, wants to get more information, can wh where should they go, and uh, where can they get some more more help uh, from you? Yeah, so we've got a website, uh, reisalesacademy.com will get you there. Easy to remember. Uh, there's a YouTube channel with by the same name, REI Sales Academy, where you have lots of videos and things like that. Um, on the website, I think there's a portion where you can opt into um, an email list where we just send you videos. Um, and we also have a, a private Facebook group um, that anyone can join that don't, don't have to be a client called the REI Sales Academy where we post stuff and then there's some questions asked. And, uh, you know, usually all the questions that are asked during the week, I try to do a video a week where I answer all of them. So those are a few places where uh, you don't have to spend any money. You don't have to do anything, but you, you can start to get the, the help uh, you like. Yeah. So I'll say that I, I, I'm amazed at how much free information you give away there. I, I'm constantly, I'm on your email list. So I get those videos. And if anybody wants a tremendous amount of free information, they can go to, I think it's midwestrev.com or reacademy.com. It's extreme, extremely helpful. I'm a member of the Facebook group too. Um, and uh, I think we're gonna wrap the show up. I, John, I can't thank you enough for everything you've done for me and for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And uh, I hope anybody who's in this business will uh, take uh, advantage of all the free things or, or, or maybe paid uh, products that John offers, because I think it, I, I think if you follow John's process, you will, you give the entire industry a better name, as opposed to the guys out there that just bring a sledgehammer to every appointment and want to just hit people over the head with it. And yeah. think that that's going to make, and, and like you said, you will buy some properties, but I think if you use John's process, even parts of it that, that work for you, um, it gives a better name to everyone in our industry because approaching the sale the way John teaches is a, is a much, much better way for most sellers to, to sell and for most uh, buyers to buy. So, yeah, well, thank you for that. And I appreciate you, you know, having me on, Michael. It's always a pleasure. Thank you very much, John. Hey, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, go to howtoflipnewyork.com for more information about the various ways that I can help you. And again, if you can leave a review, uh, that would really help us out.